I might need to uh, reintroduce myself here this morning. Um, is, is, uh, I'm Pastor Ryan. I've been gone for a little while. As Pastor Bob jokingly mentioned last week, and I think he mentioned it this morning again, that uh, we have a new pastor, right? Um, and that's because I was gone for a couple months on a sabbatical. And I just want to say um, it was such a wonderful time. It was such a wonderful opportunity. I'm very thankful for the graciousness of this church in giving pastors regular sabbaticals and a, and a time to, to get away. Um, and so my wife and I, we had an opportunity during that to go with some other people in the church to Israel for two weeks, which was just amazing. It was wonderful. And then also had time just to, just to spend with family, to spend more time with my kids, to relax a little bit, and that was great. But I also had a lot of time to, to read, to read books, to read God's Word, uh, to pray about those things, and I had a lot of time to think, and to think about things that... Um, I don't have time in the normal weekly ministry kind of stuff to think about. When you're kind of planning events and thinking, you know, and, and doing those kinds of things, planning the details, you don't often think big picture. And so I had a chance the last couple months to kind of take a step back and look at the big picture. And one of the big things that came out of that is something that I wanted to talk to you about this morning, and that is the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? And we're going to do that today out of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, if, uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you're going to find where we're at on page 1015. We're mainly going to be in chapter, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Um, so I want to give you some context. Uh, as we're just kind of jumping into the middle of a passage, um, kind of understanding what the book's about and what, what else is going on here is important. <coughs> To give you the context of this book, as we just kind of jump into the middle of it, what's, what's going on with it? So Peter is writing this to churches, to groups of Jesus followers that live in Asia Minor. And one of the big things, one of the themes we see throughout this book is he's encouraging them in the midst of suffering. They're dealing with a lot of suffering and persecution going on, and, uh, and, and it's hard, right? And it's because of their faith, because they're followers of Jesus, they're, they're suffering under the government, under the people around them. They're dealing with this suffering. And yet what Peter says to them isn't like, don't worry, it'll be over soon, something like that. Um, or it's really not that bad. That's not what he says. He says, actually, suffering can be a good thing. Um, suffering's good because we're following in Jesus' footsteps. As Jesus suffered unjustly, we get, to, we get to know him more through that suffering. But there's another piece of it as well. As we suffer unjustly in front of others, people notice that, Right? We have an opportunity to show people the love of Jesus by suffering for him, and they're going to see Jesus in the midst of that suffering. So there's, there's that whole theme of suffering going on in 1 Peter. And as we come to this chapter in chapter 2, we're going to see that he's, he's helping them either remember or establish for the first time their, what their identity is in, who they are. And as we talk about mission, it's important to remember who we are so we know what we're called to do. And so who are we? Who are they? Uh, in, in, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 2, we see this verse. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. What's this word picture going on here? Living stones being built up as a spiritual house. It's a picture of the temple. As you may have heard Bob talk about, a couple months ago in, in his uh, series in Haggai, this idea of, of the church as the temple of God, right? The, the, the dwelling place of God is no longer in a building, right? It's in a people. 
And there's actually this whole, this whole theme throughout all of Scripture. You go back to the garden as the dwelling place of God, and then the tabernacle, the temple, and now God's very people are being built into a temple. They are the dwelling place of God. This identity, right? You can see where it comes out. We see it even clear in verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So many allusions looking back, these pictures from the Old Testament, these descriptions of Israel are now true about the church. And what's the most important thing we get out of this? What is the church? It's the people of God. The people of God. And we see that here with, with these ideas in, in uh, Hosea, some, some verses straight out of Hosea, right? Once you were not my people, now you are my people. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And this is really important for the discussion that we're going to have today about the mission of the church, is remembering what the church is. Um, too often, when I say church, what's going to come to your mind? This building, right? But I remember being told as a kid, Ryan, the church isn't the building, the church is the people. But I've spent the rest of my life struggling to really believe that and struggling to really live that out, right? Uh, the way I talk to my kids, you know, when, when you work at a church, you know, I tell, oh, I'm going to the church, as if the church is this building. Um, or we, we talk about, you know, oh, we're going to go shopping at the Winco by the church, and yet, the church is so much more than that, right? The church is the people of God. And it's important for us to remember that, to understand that this morning as we talk about our mission. Um, and so what does that church do? Right here, that you, this is the middle of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Those people of God, what do they do? They talk about how great God is. They proclaim the greatness of God. We just did that, right? Those, those two songs, how, how great is our God, how great that art. We, we as the people of God share how amazing and how great God is. And we could do that in kind of an abstract way, right? We could look at nature and say, look how beautiful that is, isn't God great? Or we could read the story of Israel and talk about, oh, isn't God so great from that? But there's more. We have a personal story in the midst of this. We mo- that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have a story of being called out of the darkness into his marvelous light, that we can proclaim the greatness of God to the people around us. So as the people of God, we proclaim the greatness of God. And that gets us into into this mission. Now, we're still kind of setting up this context because we really need to get into what does this look like every day. Um, And so as we continue to do that, we go to verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's identifying them as foreigners, and yet a lot of them probably were born where they still are. But this, it's because of that change of identity. Now they're the people of God living amongst people that are not of God, right? They're foreigners in their own land. And how are they called to live? They're called to live differently, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Some of that most, the most like basic form of sin, right? Giving into your passions of the flesh that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and has been a problem ever since. And yet 
The people of God are called to live different, not like the world, not like the unbelievers. He calls them Gentiles here, even though he was writing to Gentiles. He's still showing them that distinction. You're now the people of God. So not living as unbelievers. But it's not easy. It's hard to live differently, right? These passions wage war within your soul. This is very difficult. That's why we need God's help with it. Okay, so we're called, we're the people of God, we're called to live differently. There's another part of this, and this is where we're going to see a lot of this come up in today's message. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We live differently in front of other people. We live differently in the midst of the world. And when unbelievers see that we are living differently, that, that may lead to what it says right here, that they glorify God on the day that Jesus comes back. The way we live is important. The way we live in front of other people is important because it gives an opportunity to share the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, so as we get into this, we are the people of God and and we have been given a mission. Now, Peter doesn't say this way here, but I think it's helpful if we we go to that. What is that, that big picture? What is that mission that Jesus has given us? It comes from the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. That's our mission, is to make disciples. I was talking to the kids about that, right? As followers of Jesus, we're to make more followers of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So that's our mission. And we're going to see, I think Peter helps us this morning see how to start living that out, how to start that mission. Sometimes starting a mission is the hardest part. And I think for a lot of us, that is probably true. How do we just get this thing going? How do we start this thing? Well, he's going to show us three ways or three, three areas of our life that we can live differently in order to show people the love of Jesus. And it all has to do with authority. So the first one is submitting yourself to the governing authorities. The second one is submitting yourself to vocational authority, your job. The third is submitting yourself to household authority. And each of these give us an opportunity to live differently in front of other people. So the first one, governing authority. Uh, Verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So what's going on here? saying, submit yourself, be subject to, put yourself under the authority of the government. And it's important that we remember the situation that Peter's talking into, right? Because Peter's not saying like, hey, these government guys, they're pretty cool anyways, you should just follow them, it'll all work out in the end. This is Rome, and Rome is not known as being the nice guys, right? Um, Followers of Jesus suffered under Rome. And there's a couple emperors around this time that were really messed up people, that were doing really messed up things to followers of Jesus. And yet, what what does Peter tell them? Submit to them. Peter's got a bigger perspective, though, right? If you take a step back and you look at the big picture, what do we remember? Remember that Jesus is the king, right? Jesus is the king. And he's sovereign. He's in control. And so any other leader, any other government that is over this uh, is, is under him. And so we can feel free 
as far as, as far as we can to live under that government because Jesus is the king, right? Um, but we don't just do this, and this is going to be important that we keep coming back to this, that we keep remembering this throughout this morning because we're not just doing this to try to be good people, right? We're already uh, the people of God. So we're not, and we're not doing this to earn God's favor or something like that. There's something deeper here. Yes, we do want to do this to follow Jesus. There's more. When we do this in front of other people, it gives us an opportunity to show them the love of Jesus. And I think we have a lot of opportunity in that today. I think this applies to what we're dealing with today in the midst of politics, right? This very, this very bipartisan, divided political landscape that we're in. It can seem like a mess sometimes, and we don't know which side to choose sometimes. But I don't think it's about choosing sides. Yes, we should vote, but it's not about picking a side. I think it's about taking a step back, about rising above it, about remembering that Jesus is the king. Our hope is not in these human institutions. Our hope is in Jesus. And we don't need to be worried, upset, or anxious about these things. And that should come out in the way that we talk about them. You guys might have opportunities at, at work, other places, friends, family, where you get to talk about politics. And you don't have to shy away from it. But look for opportunities to bring the gospel into it, not your political opinions, right? And that's where we're going to see life changing people. They're going to notice, man, you talk about this differently. You're not getting all worked up about one side or the other. And that may lead to friendships, to relationships, to conversations that you can share the good news of the true king, of King Jesus. So that's, that's uh, being subject to this political authority. The second is that vocational authority. Okay, what are we talking about here? What do we mean by that? Because as we read this, it may seem a little strange. It says, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Often as we come to these kinds of passages, we will skip over them really quick, thinking they're irrelevant because we've abolished slavery, right? So we don't need to worry about that anymore. But I think there's something that this tells us about employment, right? About bosses, about how to deal with them. Now, I really hope that your boss does not feel like a slave driver. Um, but sometimes that can feel like the case, right? And how we live and how we act at work is important. Because it's an opportunity to be on mission. It's an opportunity to start that mission by, by living differently in front of other people. Um, and even when you're suffering unjustly. And actually, he makes a point to talk about that quite a bit here. Okay? Yeah, some of your bosses are great, but some may not be. And you may suffer unjustly. Don't suffer for doing wrong, right? That's your own fault. But when you suffer for doing right, that's an opportunity Verse 21, so that you might follow in his steps, right? Jesus suffered unjustly. You can follow in his steps and you can show people the love of Jesus in the midst of suffering and persecution. Whether it's your boss that might wake up, realize, repent for what they're doing, or maybe not, but it might be other coworkers that see what's going on and they see Jesus in what you're doing. And that leads to conversations. That leads to relationships that are built on the good news of Jesus. The last one here is authority within the household. Submitting yourself, authority in the house. And mainly what we're talking about here is marriage. And there's two situations that Peter spells out here. The first is <clears throat> husbands and uh, wives where the wife is a follower of Jesus and the husband is not. The second is where both are followers of Jesus. So as we look at this first one, this actually would have been fairly common 
um, back, back when he was writing this, uh, because the way of Jesus was very appealing to the underprivileged, right, to the lower in society, the slaves, women, Okay? And so they would be naturally drawn to, to something that, you know, is so progressive. It's actually kind of funny. A lot of times people would say that, that the Bible, that Christianity is regressive, right? That it's backwards. And yet at the time, man, this was way ahead of its time. Equality of people. And, and so, um, so it wasn't uncommon for a wife to follow Jesus and the husband not. But there's a problem with that. Because in Rome... The, the husband, the, you know, he's the head of the household. He's the patriarch. And so whatever gods he worships, everyone in the family was expected to worship too. The slaves, the kids, the wives, they were expected to follow his gods too. And now all of a sudden you've got this wife that's not going to do that. She recognizes Jesus as the king. She's not going to worship those gods. But how she goes about that is important. What does it say here? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What he's saying here is it's, it's not about trying to argue your husband into believing in Jesus. It's not trying to show him all the things that he's doing wrong. Yes, worship God, but live, but it's not, live a pure, let, show, it, show it to him by the way you live your life, that pure conduct. Loving him, being respectful to him in the midst of this, that's what's going to show him the love of Jesus. And it, and it may not be easy, and he may never come around to it, but that's what, he's called, that's what they're called to do. And, and he continues on here, it's not about trying to win your husband over by dressing up really pretty and looking nice. No, let him see the inner beauty of what Jesus has changed. That's what's going to change him. That's what's going to show him the truth. The second example, husbands and wives, that are, that are both followers of Jesus. And there's something, there's something so great about that because that marriage is built on the redemption, the blood, on the forgiveness of Jesus. And when a marriage is built on that, it's so beautiful, right? When you can forgive each other easily because Jesus has forgiven you, that marriage is going to look different. It's going to look different than the world. And maybe you can recognize that today. You have an opportunity in your own marriage today to live differently in front of other people, to show people what a marriage built on the forgiveness of Jesus, on the redemption of Jesus looks like, because it's going to look different. I don't know if you've, if you've been to any weddings um, where people do not believe, and, and, and they don't use the language that most people would use in church, the more traditional kind of language. I remember going to one where their vows were, I'll love you as long as we're together. It's just sad, right? And, and marriage is one of the greatest stressors in life, even for believers, right? That's such an opportunity. The people around you, they're probably struggling in some way or another with their marriage. And you can show them what your marriage looks like. And that may be an opportunity. It may be an opportunity to show them the love of Jesus. Kind of wrap this 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 section up with including verses 8 and 9 because I think it helps us get back to the big picture. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I kind of see this as not just in these three areas, but everything in your life is an opportunity to live out the mission that Jesus has given us. And this mission is an everyday mission of the everyday people of God. And it starts with living differently in front of other people. 
There's an important part here, though, that we have to recognize. Peter doesn't talk about it because he doesn't need to because culture was different back then. But we have to address it, address it today because culture is, is different than it was back then. Back then, life was not very private. Um, your life was lived in public, right? Um, we had a chance to see this firsthand with going to Israel. You see the way that cities and houses are set up, and you know people live pretty close together. They would know the business of their neighbors. They would live in front of other people. People would know what was going on in their lives, right? Your pagan neighbors would notice that you stopped going to the pagan festivals, and, and they would ask you, what's going on? Why haven't you been going? People are going to see that you're living differently because life is, is public, uh, <clears throat> One of the, a good example, this was true in Israel as well of this, um, but uh, my wife Jill and I and Alicia Williams um, traveled together over there and we had a stop off in the Netherlands for a couple days and we got to visit a castle, which was pretty cool seeing this castle. It was like a thousand years old or something. And um, we got to this one area and there was a bathroom, an ancient bathroom, not a current one that you were supposed to use. And there, but there was something really different about that bathroom. There was no door on it. Now, I would have just assumed that after a thousand years, the door fell off or something. It's a museum now. They took the door off. But you had had a little audio tour so you could hear, and they talked about it. And they said, no, actually, they wouldn't put doors on bathrooms in that situation. If you were really rich, you might have a door on your bathroom. But they were suspicious of people seeking privacy. What are you doing in there? What are you plotting against us? Life was very public back then. (laughs) Contrast that to life now. We're very private. You look at, um, especially, from what I've heard, especially in the Pacific Northwest, right, we're very private. I was thinking about it. It's kind of funny. You can buy almost anything online now, right? You just go on Amazon, you order it, and it comes to your your house in two days. You don't have to go anywhere, interact with people. It'll come to you, right? And have you ever had that moment where, like, maybe the blinds are open and the delivery guy, like, walks past and you make eye contact? But you're not going to open the door while he's standing there, right? Like, that would just be awkward. You know, you wait for him to knock and walk away, and then you go and get the package. Then That way you don't have to interact with people, right? I know I'm not the only one who's done that. Come on. Uh, you can buy groceries online. And, and, and even if you can't, right, even if there's some that you can't, you just go on to Fred Meyer, you, you order them, and then you drive up into that special parking spot, and they bring them out to your car for you, right? You only have to interact with one person. We, uh, more and more people are working from home, so all you have to do is email. Uh, you know, we live in suburbs and rural areas where we have fences and hedges and garage doors that open up and we go in and they close and we never have to talk to anybody, unless we want to, right? We, we come to church on Sunday morning to talk to people. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm not. My point is we have to make an extra effort to get out and be around other people, and that's where this mission starts. It's first, we got to be around other people. we got to get involved in other people's lives in order to begin that mission of making disciples. I want to frame that mission um, in, in kind of a three-step three kind of way. Uh, this mission of the Great Commission, right, make disciples. The first would be go to. And that's mainly what we're talking about this morning is go to. We have to go out and go to other people in order to in order to build relationships, start friendships, in order to tell them about the good news of King Jesus. So we go to. The second is bring in. Now, we're tempted to usually think of bring them to church, and and that's been a big move, um, or that's been a big thing in church history, right, is, is I just need to invite somebody to church. I just need to bring them to church. 
And that may work sometimes, but the culture that we're in now, it does not work as well. People who have never been in a church before, if they come in here on a Sunday morning, it's probably going to be weird. And we're a pretty normal church, right? But it's still going to be weird. And a lot of times, you've got to bring them into God's family before you bring them to a Sunday gathering, right? And that's what this bring in, that's the more important part, is bring them in to God's family. Bring them into God's people. And that's not going to happen overnight. It may take days, weeks, months. It may take years of building friendships and interactions and talking about the good news before someone responds in faith. They become a part of the family of God. And the third one is build up. And that's the part that we're pretty good at as a church, right? We, we come together. That building up is that worshiping together on a Sunday morning is about studying the Bible together, growing more in our faith so that we can go out again. And that's important. It's a circle, right? We build up so that we can go to again and do it all over again. And so that's that mission that we have. And that main part that I'm focusing on this morning is the go-to. We need to be going to. We can't expect people to come here. And as I think about this, as I reflect about this in my own life, I don't know if you can see some of these same things, but growing up in conservative Baptist churches in the 90s and early 2000s, there was this big push to um, mimic activities out in culture and bring them inside and make them for Christians and hope that people come to them, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, we see something out there, we go, oh, that looks like a lot of fun. Let's make our own Christian version of it, have it at the church, and hope that people come to it. Now, there is times where that worked. What I'm here to tell you today, guys, though, is that that's not, that's not working. We need to go to. And that may be getting involved in other things out in the culture, out in the world. A good example I have of this, uh, I was reading a book about this over sabbatical called Everyday Church, and he gives this example of if you really like hiking, right, our natural response is to be like, oh, I should start a hiking group in the church, get a bunch of us to go out hiking together, and then maybe I could invite my neighbors or coworkers or something to join in too. That would be cool. He's like, no, go join a hiking group out there. Rub shoulders with unbelievers. Get to know other people so that you can build relationships, that you can share the good news of Jesus. We have an opportunity coming up. Super Bowl is in a couple weeks, right? And a lot of you are probably going to watch it whether you like football or not. That's an opportunity. But too often, our idea is, yeah, I want to invite all my Christian friends over so we can watch the football game. What if you didn't do that this year? What if instead you tried to invite some of your non-Christian coworkers or friends or neighbors over to watch football together? They like football too. That's an opportunity. Or what if... You could get yourself invited to an unbeliever's Super Bowl party and interact with people there. That's an opportunity to do that. Now, if I find out that someone's planning one at the church to invite all their Christian friends to, I'm going to go on the calendar and delete it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) This is an opportunity to interact with people that don't believe in Jesus, that we can show them the love of Jesus. So as as I do this... um, I have to think, as I think about my own life and our family and that sort of thing, I have to be honest with you guys. I'm up here telling you this stuff, not because I'm an expert, not because I've done it, not because I've got it figured out, but because I'm probably worse than most of you. And that's something Jill and I have been dealing with as sabbaticals. We started talking about these things because we've struggled to make this a reality in our life. And we've realized we need to get our kids out involved in other things. Um, we live in the suburbs, and, you know, and it's, we've tried to get to know our neighbors, but it's been hard. 
We have, at best, we have shallow relationships with them, right? I, I work at a church. I, wor- I, I work here, right? I, I mean, I talk with my coworkers about Jesus all the time, but I don't think that's really what we're talking about here, right? Um, we, we're home educating our kids, which may seem kind of hypocritical with what I'm talking about right here, um, but our reason for doing that is not to keep them out of the world. Um, and so we've had to look at these kinds of things and go, man, we need to get our kids involved in the world. But for some people, that can be scary. Once again, that, that, cult, that Christian culture I grew up in, there was that big push about not letting your kids around the world, right? Because it'll corrupt them. Um, we, you don't want your kids to be out in the world because they'll hear bad things. And yet, my desire is, what I want to do is I want to disciple my kids in a way that I can feel free to send them out that they know the truth, that I'm discipling them day in and day out, that they're hearing more of the truth from me than they're hearing from out there, so that they're ready to go out and engage with the world. And it may seem scary, but I think it's an opportunity, even in the way that I disciple my kids. And I'll be honest with you, this is true for me, and that's okay if you don't agree with me, but I'm okay if my kids hear cuss words. I'm okay if my kids hear swearing, because that opens up an opportunity for me to have a conversation with them. That gives me an opportunity to disciple them in real life. I'm okay if my kids make friends with somebody who has two moms because that's a conversation I can now have with my kids. Too often we disciple in a vacuum, in the vacuum of Christian culture, and we don't see how the good news of Jesus intersects the real messy life of ordinary people. And I want my kids to see that. And I want them to interact with that in a way that, we, that I can disciple them even more so that when they grow up, they're not surprised, they're not shocked by the world. They know how King Jesus intersects with that. They know how it, he has an answer for all of it. And so that's why Jill and I have been talking, okay, how do we do this, right? Um, how do we get this started? And so we're looking for opportunities to get our kids involved in sports and things out in the community so, that we, so they can rub shoulders with unbelievers, so that we can rub shoulders with unbelievers, so that we can start this mission of discipleship. Get to know people interact with them, share the good news of Jesus with them. That's, that's what we want to do. That's my family. That may not be your family. You may not have young kids. But what are some other areas? What are some other opportunities that you have where you're at? Um, maybe it's that hiking thing, right? Go join. If you have a shared interest, if you have an interest in things, a hobby, something like that, go find a bunch of non-Christians that do it too and join in with them. Don't, don't start the club here. Go out and join a different one. Um, you may not be a pastor um, of a church like me, and you may interact with non-believers at work, and that may be all you need. You may have tons of opportunity there, but it takes a perspective change. What are you going to work to do? Are you going to work to make money, to get a promotion, to provide for your family? Or are you going to work to make disciples, to build friendships with people, to share the good news with them. And that may mean that you don't eat your lunch at your desk, but you eat your lunch in the break room. That may mean that you stop and talk to people when you'd rather not. That may mean inviting people over for dinner or going to, over to other people's dinner houses for dinner. You have an opportunity there to rub shoulders, to engage with, to become friends, to build relationships, to share the good news of Jesus. Because this mission of the church that we have, right, this great commission, it is an everyday mission of the church with the everyday people. It's not the programs and ministries that we run here. 
Some of it may happen there. But I would say primarily that mission does not happen on Sunday mornings right now. It doesn't just happen at Awana on Thursday nights or youth group on Sunday nights. It happens every day in your every life because this isn't the church. You are the church. We are the church. We're the people of God on the everyday mission of God. And I want to make this clear as we close. Because as we talk about the church's mission, I think our natural thought um, is we think about the institution or the organization of Brush Prairie Baptist, right? We think that the, the staff and leadership get together and we come up with this mission and then we make sure that all of our programs, all of our um, gatherings, all of our ministries align with that mission. So that when you come here to participate in events and gatherings, then that's when you're doing the mission of God. But I've got a newsflash for you. This isn't the church. You are the church. This isn't their mission. This is your mission. This is our mission. And it's an everyday mission for everyday people. And everything that we do, we have an opportunity to do it. We've got to do it in front of other people. We've got to figure out a way to get involved in other people's lives so that we can share the good news of King Jesus. And it is really good news. This is what discipleship really is. This is what our mission is. This is our life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us here that we would, that we would be convinced um, that our mission doesn't only happen on Sunday mornings here at this gathering. God, I pray that um, we would be convinced here, God, that our mission happens in our everyday lives. And Lord, I pray um, not just that we would know it, God, that we would do it. Um, that we would see the people around us as an opportunity to make real, authentic friendships and relationships. And I pray that you would be working in us to do that, Lord. God, as we now turn our hearts to receive this offering, Lord, um, God, I pray that we would pour ourselves out to you, God, not just with money, Lord, but with our whole selves. Every day we would see an opportunity to sacrifice our time, our energy, to get involved in the lives of other people, to show them that you are worth following, that you are the answer to everything in our life, and that we want to be with you forever. Lord, I pray that you would be working in us in that, in our lives, God, um, showing us your truth and helping us to share that truth with other people. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>